0: Welcome to the Celesto Show. Today I have my friend Ruben with me. Um, I have known Ruben for about a year now. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have met um, on the side of my house at the playground. I did some pull-ups in front of him, kind of to show off um, during the vacation. And uh, now we have been friends for quite a while. Um, And I wanted to invite Ruben here, uh, because uh, he's a therapist and he has been working with men for uh, around five years, something like that. Four years. Four years. Um, And um, that's why I wanted to speak about his journey and the work he does. So welcome. Thanks, Alesto. It's a pleasure. Should I hold
1: it? Yeah, great. I'm kind of scared to just touch this bubble. (laughs) Guys, don't touch this black thing. It will crush your ears. Okay, so, um, wire in here, what did you want me to say?
0: Well, introduce yourself a uh, little bit. I thought
1: you were going to introduce me, which I would like to be introduced.
0: You would like to be introduced? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, should I talk about your past as well, or is that heavy stuff? Well, start
1: with who I am and what I do now, that gives a clear picture, and then we can dive into the past uh, in a bit.
0: Okay. So, um, well, um, yeah, think about yeah, it. Yeah, I have to think about it for a while, huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> while sipping my tea,
1: I can also do it if you
0: want. No, um, so, first of all, before I tell everything about Ruben, I want to say he works with men, spiritual nice guys who are pleasing people, so that means that um, they do not really know what they want. And even if they do know what they want, they are more concerned with what others want because they don't want to be rejected. Um, yeah. And that pretty much tells a story about Ruben as well, because he was the biggest pleaser of all time in his past. Um, so that's why he is now working with these men. Um, just like I'm kind of building my niche around what i have been through um so that's that's what makes him very special as a as a somebody who's uh, working as a therapist right um why does that make me special tell me why i'm special <laughs> <laughs> well because uh y- you don't just tell things you learn from the books right exactly yeah that's true yeah yeah um so that's that's also why i think that it's really essential for therapists to have experience like that, right? Yeah, I feel very grateful and very seen as you say this. Wow, well, that's great. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Mm. So that's uh that that's Ruben for the biggest part. Um mm-hmm. but uh well Ruben also does calisthenics and I've been working together with him um oh no not actually together anymore. At the start we worked together uh for the calisthenics park in in uh Cullenborg right
1: yeah, it's still yeah. underway. The yeah. park's still underway.
0: Yeah. Um so he practices calisthenics and uh, his website is now launched. Yeah.
1: It's true. <laughs> it's yeah, true. It's, it is actually launched. Mm. If the sound isn't working and uh, Celeste is holding the mic like this, then just pull it up and then when I start shouting you turn it down again.
0: That's the way to go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like riding the knob, like, oh no god, stop speaking. This is too much. No,
0: oh no, stop speaking. <laughs> yeah, this is gonna be all the time, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: I can also lounge here and be like, "Oh. Yeah, as you see I have yeah.
0: this blanket here and uh nice and cozy." Okay. So, um a little more about you. You you do How do we know it? each other?
1: Like we had a pretty So, so I met Celesto and I was immediately like, "Hey, yeah. So there's something special about this guy. He's way ahead of his time and he's definitely into all this spiritual uh stuff that usually you know children like let's just call people under 18 children <laughs> yeah. of of the age under 18 is people generally aren't that interested in spirituality at that age and so celesto was just a, a, a shining light with that and was like you know what if you want to talk uh, message me and uh, we can hang out and well i thought that could become a mentor relationship where i wanted to just guide Celesto to well (laughs) through some of those challenging maybe disconnecting uh, phases in life when you can't really connect to many Mm -hmm. people of your own age and uh, to be guided by someone who actually understands some of that and uh, at first I was hopeful that this mentorship relationship would work but you know I was actually in a new city and I wanted friends and so although I struggled for a long time with finding the balance of is this a mentorship or a friend relationship?
0: Yeah, we well, had to really find the balance. So yeah, I mean, um, I have to say that in in some way, uh, um, you kind of mentored me, but more in a sense that um, you made me get into uh, the Jungian uh, thinking and things like that, and yeah, working yeah, yeah. with my own traumas <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, well, that's so, great already, actually. Yeah, it's like, oh, but but it didn't feel like we intended to go on some sort of mentorship uh, no. relationship.
1: No, I guess that should have, if that arises, I guess that that should just arise naturally. So yeah, yeah and we basically started working out and um, and well, it's been a year now. And I moved out of Cullenborg uh, where Celeste still lives. And uh, even though we had a sort of breakup <laughs> uh, after I, uh, I was rude to Celesto and I didn't really figure out if it was a, if he w- would be a, a mentee or 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 a friend. and We I, broke
0: up like two times. Well, huh? yeah, I guess, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. we we got back together, you <laughs> see, and
1: uh, yeah, basically, and um, and this is really our fine-tuning of, um, yeah, the, the, the sort of connection we have. And um, since we are both trying to build our business and growing and helping men, this is really just a very collaborative effort to uh, combine thoughts and discuss very important, to me, very important uh, aspects. And to also get an opportunity to talk about myself.
0: <laughs> of course, yeah, well there's a, more than enough space for that and more oh, than great. enough time because we're we are gonna talk for quite a bit.
1: Seems the heater is working, let's get
0: that off. <laughs> we closed <laughs> the doors a while ago, right? Yeah, 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 it's warm <laughs> I'm gonna break. sit a bit closer to you, Wait. Ah. because
1: the mic has to work, as huh? As the show carries on, uh, we slowly get
0: back into each other's arms, as you see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Alright, um, so where should we start? Um, tell us a bit about your journey. Nice. How you ended up uh, doing this work. Oh
1: man, my journey. So, oh, precariously holding this. It's still precarious. <laughs> there we go. So, this one. Yeah, sure. I like this better. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. <sighs> yeah, I feel uh, raw in my heart already just thinking about that. It's been... Uh, um very recently i moved to zeist which is a very cute foresty place next to utrecht central uh, netherlands and in that place i was exposed to mold and had a very intense reaction with a lot of stress that i couldn't uh, manage and what happened was that my whole system overloaded this is recent right i'm giving you a catch-up of where I'm right now, and my system overloaded, so my nervous system was in a pre- perpetual stress state, and I couldn't get out. And at first I thought this was this was just the mold exposure, but in fact it seemed like my entire build, accumulated stress and fear and trauma from my childhood was, uh, <coughs> it had reached a level where it co- I couldn't c- carry on my life without acknowledging that and processing and healing some of that and in particular it seems like my there, there are three core pillars that really shaped uh, who I be- became that would lead me to become a uh, in my term I call it masculinity mentor but it has various applications like coach and therapist. So first is the the divorce of my parents when I was three. And my sense is that it really messed up with my attachment and uh, that a very deep sense of unsafety in this world is really caused when my parents well first had struggles, but then also separated. And that really left me in the care of my mother, and it seemed like I had to really emotionally take care of her. And it depleted me, and I wasn't allowed to just be free and be myself, and express myself, or be angry, or have desires. And it it, it I became a pleaser, because I couldn't be myself, so I chopped off parts of myself in order to feel emotionally safe. But still, I was arbitrarily punished or threatened to be left by the wayside. At one point, I remember, or hit, whenever I made a joke that seemed uh, that that frightened her.
0: By your mother? Yeah, or yeah, yeah. So hit I, by your mother? Yeah, yeah.
1: She said, uh, basically translated from Dutch, it's like, "Oh, just shout when you're done. Give a shout." And, and well, I did, and so I, I really screamed, <laughs> and she, oh, she just rushed into the kitchen. That was my grandmother's place. She was Indonesian, plants everywhere, and art and everything, and she rushed in, and she just looked at me, and she really just smacked me right in the face, and she yelled, don't do that ever again. Well, and those kinds of experiences really made sure that I actually just shut up and uh, tone myself down and, and not really be true to myself, basically.
0: Okay, and what is what is the context of you shutting up? Does it mean that you had to suppress things to survive in an yeah, environment?
1: B- basically, it's every impulse of livelihood and of al- aliveness, I would say. Um, like, spontaneous joy. Yeah, like spontaneity was crushed. And mm, genuine emotions, like being upset or being... Uh, angry or sad about something like that wasn't welcome. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I froze. This is the thing. I froze up inside and even when something happened, I just froze up inside and I, I couldn't do anything about that. So like setting a boundary when when she was being invasive or um, well manipulative or
0: anything else. OK. I'm gonna hold the mic from now on because it's uh it's oh, not yeah. right. okay yeah all right um so you had to suppress your emotions in order to survive in that environment yeah well, it's not just emotions it's like i couldn't i couldn't
1: be capital b i wasn't i couldn't out of protecting myself or or being able to maintain my connection to my mother so I could be safe and loved and held as a child it prevented me from having any desires of my own so basically I tuned into the desires of my mother or whatever she could have and then made sure I did what I thought she would want or that I intuitively felt she needed.
0: Okay so that's because as a child the attachment relationship with your Parents is the most important, right? Yes. So yes. Uh, during the process of not being able to show your emotions because otherwise the attachment needs aren't met, you you lose your authenticity.
1: You could say so. I, I, there's not really a psychological theory
0: that states it in this way. Uh, well, Dr. Gabor Maté, uh, which is quite my favorite uh, uh, psychologist in the field, uh, says it like this. So yeah. that that's that's how I kind of got it. Uh, right. The yeah,
1: yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I didn't hear it from anywhere else. But definitely the attachment is really important and I wouldn't say that my attachment style got messed up after like it's a there's a bit of a nuance there. So m- my attachment style became either ambival- ambivalent, I guess ambivalent. Yeah. So I have both um, stay with me and go away, <laughs> or I will leave, um, right? Both ambivalent. But it's not like... It's more that when I then had to depend on my mother, it's not like the that attachment style. Yeah... I I guess the f- the foundation is the attachment style, and then the connection I had with my mother and the way I was dependent on her um, made it worse, or or prevented me from being myself. But the attachment style of being ambivalently, is that a word? But that be having the ambivalent attachment style doesn't necessarily say I would become a pleaser, like not necessarily, but that really ex. really arose in relationship to my mother it's a basic it's a great foundation being ambivalent stay here no i don't want your love because you'll devour me go away so i guess i guess it's there yeah
0: okay so what what exactly caused the pleasing then
1: that i would be punished or neglected or threatened whenever i felt something that was not deemed acceptable or that that would cause her emotional turmoil and then I just crushed those parts of myself and this is this is really described in the book uh, drama of the gifted child by uh, I guess Alice Miller is it? Alice Miller. Yes. Yeah, I heard about yeah, that. Yeah.
0: yesterday I read about it in another book
1: yeah it really goes into depth about how then the, the child becomes this sort of gifted precocious which means incredibly talented and swift learning but also depressed adaptive child and that it will just live for the desires of 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 his or her parents and it it really stains <laughs> their entire life thereafter because that's what you know that's what you've learned and mm-hmm. there is a a great lack of authenticity and feeling yourself. So a great level of dissociation or disconnection from yourself and your body, which could also lead to fleeing to the head, not trusting your body, feeling unsafe. This is also with women and uh, menstruation, for example. But for me, it, it I, I turned to books and games and and fantasy worlds, because it was unsafe in the body,
0: basically. Yeah. To to cope with it, basically.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. I did that too, because I mean, um, I can't really say that our situation was exactly the same, yeah. but um, it was for the biggest part after my grandma died that my mother was emotionally quite unstable, mm-hmm. and I remember, I just remember in my mind as well, but also by what my mother told me that. That's when I really started kind of taking care of her, which by itself doesn't have to be a wrong thing. Um well, if you're a child, like yeah. the So Ivan Nodge is
1: the founder of the style of therapy called contextual therapy, and he refers to the loyalties and privileges and entitlements that their the children have from their parents. And it basically what I'm referring to now is that as a parent, you are obliged to take care of of your child. And some of the things that can go wrong is that the child will turn to, well, parentification, which means he or she becomes the parent
0: for his parent.
1: And it's, it's, that's not, it's not right.
0: It's... Yeah, I I totally agree with that, that, though, um, because those needs are supposed to be met by uh, their partner, right? Oh well, yeah, that's
1: part of the boy crisis, Warren Farrell's Boy Crisis, uh, co-authored with John Gray, where he's like, oh, well, and many other books, actually, also. John Lee, uh, Breaking the Mother-Son Dynamic. Uh, both, you both read. I read yeah, both, yeah. Them, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where he's like, well, if the mother is actually a single single mother and there's no father or no men to have adult sexual, emotional uh A relationship with. It's the the boy's turn, right? So that's what you're referring to.
0: Well, yeah, but but also just by a matter of kind of how it's supposed to be in a healthy manner, right? What do you mean? That um, if those needs of um, kind of emotional support are are not being met uh, because their partners, emotionally unstable or just um, like my dad, for example, right. who is totally out of touch with his emotions because my my dad is more of like a tyrannical figure uh who is masking his um vulnerability by mm-hmm. uh making himself very big and kind of yeah. shouting mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. so he thinks he 's very yeah. tough, but that 's actually because he 's crossing his own boundaries every yeah. single time um now I've kind of lost track of where I was with, with Telling. Um, yeah. But, oh, yeah, I remember. So uh, for my mother, those needs of emotional support yeah. weren't really being met uh, because yeah. of my dad. Yeah. Um, so that's where I came into place yeah, exactly. to to replace that. And that's what happens quite often. Exactly. Um, but what I wanted to say about that is that... Um to a certain extent I think those needs are need to be met by the partner. Yeah. Um exactly. But by itself, I think you cannot state that it's wrong that a child is taking care of his mother once in a wow, something like that. Because I mean she was very emotionally unstable and I just saw she was in pain. I don't think I can justify it,
1: honestly. I'm like no, just no. Like heart boundary, you're not going to take care of your parent, you're a child, no. I guess it's just a very clever way for nature to to remain uh, in the position to propagate the species. I mean, if we wouldn't do this, probably we wouldn't survive. So it it becomes psychologically very important that we can, if necessary, support each other, even if it's... <clears throat> a role reversal like that. But no. I feel bad about it. It's like, no. no it's I feel
0: not. bad about it too, but it's also quite a natural response. If you notice suffering, you cannot just sit there and play with your little toy cars, right? If you notice it. Well,
1: like the that. thing is, it for me, it threatened my sense of safety in the world. And the only way to be safe was to micromanage with pleasing and adapting the emotional needs of my mother
0: for me uh, for both of my parents for me it was more uh but also with my dad i mean he he didn't really show his emotional needs but Mm -hmm. it it was more that uh he just thinks he's right all the time he has no he doesn't try to kind of understand you yeah yeah um so then you have to because no. in my mind then I just feel like totally enraged. Like, why Why do you feel the right to do that? And then yeah. your mind is just going all over the place. Um, but at some point I had to learn that yeah. I also control him because I get to choose how I respond to it. And it's only when I started um, not responding to anger with anger that it changed. So now uh, recently when I got out of therapy, uh, I decided to talk with him, which is quite a, a difficult thing to do for me. Uh, also with my mother, but my dad it's even more difficult. Mm. Um, and then I told him like we, that uh, we need to kind of work on our relationship. And I told him the things I picked up in therapy. Mm. Um, and then he said, well, yeah, but it, it's been going quite a bit better for a while now, right? But that was solely because I didn't respond with anger to yeah, his anger yeah, yeah. anymore. Um, So that's also uh, on a level of how you communicate with people. It's very powerful that you, like, if you respond to anger with anger because you think that's what masculine or something, Mm -hmm. kind of protecting uh, your status, Mm -hmm. let's say, um, you really give somebody the power over you. Do you agree with that?
1: Well, it sounds like you mentioned the anger with anger response as being reactive. And then you get trapped
0: in the dynamic that was... Well, yeah, it's initiated. just totally not getting anywhere. It's like totally, no, it's you. And then he, he comes back with his response and you... Yeah, yeah. I guess
1: I, I have to think about the personality test that Jordan Peterson mentions a lot. That's the, the big five.
0: The big five? What are the big yeah. five?
1: So uh, out of the top of my head, it's uh, agreeableness, openness, neuroticism and and then two more and i guess for me those were the two most important ones oh i can just hear him say it in my head right now yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and he can go on about how some people and he says women are more agreeable than men and that's a very famous quote of his and and i guess it's true so when you say anger with anger and that being masculine it makes more sense it's also in the big five it makes sense that men would then be more disagreeable and then respond with anger to anger and so if you want to turn that around, you have to go to more being more agreeable. It's like, oh, you're angry? Well, okay. Um, and then fill it in. Maybe you have still have turmoil. Or yeah, you're but what I,
0: what I do isn't necessarily uh, being agreeable. I more of like decide to um, control myself, control the, the response that goes on in my yeah, brain. Because yeah. my brain is fucking welding. It's going like... <laughs> yeah, well, but
1: you not expressing that is part of the uh, chopping off parts of yourself to be safe. Because if no, you no, no, no. But in yourself... this case,
0: I I express it, but in the way I express it, it comes out in a way where we can actually work with the anger. Yeah, it's so productive. it's productive. It's a productive way of expressing it. So it's not rage, because rage is no. suppressed anger. It's very different. Yes. Um. So I just, it's not like I'm suppressing it. I'm just expressing it in a different way, yeah, because that yeah. works a lot better. And I've I have experienced that. Mm. Um, for example. Uh, being around you has also taught me about more kind of stepping into my boundaries and Mm. when I don't like something just mentioning it because that's kind of how we've been um, we have been in our friendship right to Mm. if we just don't like something we just say to each other and in kind of a way where it's it's very special we can just say it and then we just go sit down and talk about it so like the yeah. fuck are you doing not, not like that it's just we we say it very calmly and then we can discuss <laughs> it in a productive way it's kind of funny composed right? i don't
1: like this and yeah yeah, i, I can already imagine the fuck <laughs> go on <laughs> yeah well it doesn't have to be like that all the time yeah but we can talk about it sometimes i still feel like my pattern can play up when I'm, like for example,
0: your pattern. Yeah, what do you mean with your pattern? Uh,
1: my pattern of then uh, suppressing myself or repressing uh, my aliveness. Oh, that's the same for me, though. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like when my nervous system is is just wired, and uh, you need something. Oh, my my bottle. <laughs> I can handle it. Ah, can we, yeah, I'll dangle that. It's just when my nervous system is really uh, mm-hmm. even closer. You want, no, it, not that close, you want no. it closer? Oh.
0: <laughs> like this.
1: Yes. And this. this. Okay. Yeah. yeah, cool. When my nervous system is just really wired uh, with the stress, for example, recently. I've been rehab. That's part of my story. It's been a couple of months, but I'm still not fully recovered. And so I still have these experiences. You okay?
0: Yes. Okay. Enough water again. Stands.
1: I can really just. Um, when my nervous system is already wired and I can't relax in my parasympathetic nervous system, every single step I take or action that I take is already crossing my boundaries. And at that point, I can't properly set any strong boundaries anymore. So everything after that. So, for example, Mil- Milian here, my housemate here, he likes to talk, for example. But if I'm already wasted and i i just feel i feel drained and 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 very fragile i can't i struggle more with setting the boundary and so if that happens with you for example your energy is really strong and alive and actually there's a limit i can take and i have a very limited I'm, I'm capacity very, uh there right kind of present yeah yeah yeah. so for example you're you're not hesitating to say "Oh, oh million we need this and he's my housemate and he has nothing to do with you and he's like <laughs> and he's like oh okay well i guess <laughs> and that's funny he a is very disagreeable actually i'm very agreeable so i'll just uh, keep my mouth shut and watch that interaction but to return it's um boundaries being overwhelmed and then feeling bad about it when I can't set boundaries. That's i I'm very prone to just cutting off my authenticity when I'm crossing my own boundaries.
0: So that is the, the pattern that you have acquired in childhood is you're falling back in debt. Yeah, when I can't see any other way out or I'm already
1: too exhausted and actually mm-hmm. way beyond, yeah. way, <laughs> way beyond, way beyond, um, well-being yes and that can happen with with us as well particularly with your energy Mm -hmm. i I tend to if i'm feeling overwhelmed i'm I'm quite dominant you mean yeah your energy is like okay i know what i want i will say it and i'll go for it and i arrange it and i tell other people what they should do and I'm, i'm basically i'm like i'll just sit down or lay down and grab a book or listen to Lord of the Rings audiobooks and then just no, <laughs> the Lord of the Rings or Rings. Yes, yes, yes. That's my my passion and religion and spirituality all at the same time. Yeah. So uh yeah, that's that about um boundaries and uh cutting parts of myself. I'll just give that back to you okay see what so else you have in store.
0: W- we talked about your pattern, right? And I have a bit of a pattern too uh which is uh. Quite nuanced and sophisticated. So sophisticated. What?
1: <laughs> so sophisticated. <laughs> what a uh, good vocabulary. <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> that That's what the books do to you, huh, when yes, you start reading them. Exactly. <laughs> I'm wondering
1: here. So uh, I wanted to use words like imperative, and then it's like, huh, wait. Um, like, would you know that? Would the audience know that? I'm just, okay, no, I'll just use very important. <laughs> but it's like, uh, should I dumb that down or not? And it's like,
0: oh. well, my, my ego likes it sometimes to say difficult words. Yeah, sometimes I trip over and then I use a
1: word and it's like, oh, I'm, maybe that was a bit too poetic or, or I don't know for sure what it
0: means, but it <laughs> sounds very cool. Uh, but, but I heard you say uh, parasympathetic nervous system. Yeah, that's right. right? Yeah, uh, we, we talked about it. What, about an hour back, right? When, when I was talking about, like, breathing through the left nose hole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The nose hole. Nose you, hole. You, you don't call it like that, no? <laughs> I <was> like, nose hole.
1: <laughs> no, no, yeah, it's uh, called Nostril, actually.
0: Nostril? Yeah, yeah, nostril. Okay. He knows, he knows. <laughs> he knows. Uh, shut up.
1: Lord <laughs> <laughs> of Rings fans. Um, the Hobbit wasn't that great, but that sequence with Gollum was gold. So watch that if
0: you haven't. I hope they understand. Uh, the audience is quite young, I think. Watch the Lord of the Rings; it's better than The Hobbit. And don't watch Amazon Prime's Rings of Power. Yeah, don't, don't, don't you fool! No.
1: You can watch um, a, a breakdown actually by Nerd of the Rings. Great channel. Follow that. Nerd of the Nerd Rings. of the Rings. Is and that he- your brother? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's my uh, my alias. And uh, he actually, you can watch the the. The breakdowns of the episodes and he will tell you the references to the books they make and the omissions they make and uh, where they basically transgress or are making pretty grievous uh, liberties so do that Um, I'm halfway past episode one I don't know if I'll finish it but that's out there if you really want to know what's going on in that series if you don't know how bad it is in terms of its level of wokeness and diversity and Intersectional feminism,
0: what kind of difficult stuff? Pol- right
1: <laughs> on Tolkien. It's not Tolkien. Watch, watch Peter Jackson's movies. Read *The Lord of the Rings*. Read *The Silmarillion*. *The Hobbit*. *The Hobbit* is a fairy tale, and and they butchered it with a trilogy. It's uh, it was a dumb decision to grab cash, and uh, but the sequence with Gollum was great. So that's the ref- reference.
0: Okay. Oh yeah, the the parasympathetic nerve system. Yeah. Um, so can you explain what that is? <clears throat> well, I just read a book
1: and it about psychiatry, and it briefly went into this, but I always thought there was just one central nervous system, and that actually, actually, there's layers to it. And all I know for now for sure is that part of the nervous system you have the two branches sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic nervous system and i don't know the actual physiological nuances in this because you have the limbic system and and then with the spine and everything but let's just keep it simple for for myself actually so (laughs) i don't trip over my explanations and tell anything grievously wrong The the parasympathetic nervous system is the state that you get in when you are relaxed. So if you have a big meal and you start yawning, it's like, ah, parasympathetic nervous system activated. Or when you're on the couch, maybe reading a book or listening to some music and you notice your heartbeats going slower. Your breath is going also slower and you will start to settle more into well-being
0: okay and what what happens to the system because it seems like uh people have lost connection with this for the biggest part they they stay in their fight-or-flight response a because of their childhood yeah
1: i would say you're very correct in this but it
0: seems way more nuanced that oh it is but to describe it is this the right way to describe do you think?
1: So I my sense is that a lot of people lose touch with who they're don't, yeah, no, 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 no. don't touch that yeah. lose touch with who they really are and it's it starts with childhood where you can't express parts of yourself especially if you had a tyrannical father who uh, was very harsh or a manipulative slash demanding mother who you had to please or the other way around could could work but that's the foundation and it seems like society here because we have such a in the netherlands at least we have such a high pace of life where we have like timing is everything like the trains are always on time it's a very you know in terms of um, psychological traits if we look at the psychotic structure and the neurotic structure neurotic structure means control structure categorization uh, being a being in control whereas psychotic the psychotic structure is more about dissociating dreaming spacing out disconnecting uh, from your reality principle and in the netherlands everything is arranged we have traffic signs everywhere everything like it's one
0: of the most organized countries in the in the world i would i dare yeah, but say it's the, it's the same for america right just the western well-developed countries
1: yeah exactly and i would say the netherlands and then also scandinavia and germany they, these are leading countries in terms of neurotic traits and it's very interesting if we take a look at the development of cultures that i'm going on a tangent here but if we take a look at we are born as with a very open we are born very open our psychotic structure is all we have and we don't have any neurotic layers to say uh, repress or rationalize or um deny uh, (laughs) anything we basically are completely open and dissociative this is interesting so
0: so is there is there anything that's inherited before that well
1: yeah according to carl jung actually Um, he was groundbreaking in this so people thought that we were a clean sheet like a tabula rasa I'm not sure if that's the right term but maybe you get it Like, people believed you came into the world without any preconceived notions and I guess instincts and everything are part of that but Jung said we actually inherit much more we actually inherit the larger archetypal images and let's say memories and associations that we have gathered over millions of years which also include mammalian like animal uh, memories and patterns and it's it's all in our bodies and so, so there's a
0: yeah. uh, th- he calls it the collective uh, unconscious right
1: yeah the collective unconscious how i envision it is basically where we are wired into we we inherit basic structures which are hardwired into our psyche and it's also I would say uh, biological and then we are like tapped into a dream world which holds all the archetypal images which we are connected to which is the collective unconscious which
0: is the counterpart of the And Morphic conscious. resonance matches with that right?
1: Well, Rupert Sheldrake came up with a theory. You, you probably uh, know, him, know him from uh, via Terence McKenna. And yes. uh, the Omelian uh, uh, comes by. My <laughs> housemate seems to have a little break on his work shift. <laughs> and, and Rupert Sheldrake came with the Morphic Resonance Theory. And I didn't go too deep into it, but he was always referred to as the guy to kind of scientifically prove that there was a, a field... Well, you go on and open that door. I'll just finish my sentence.
0: Okay. It's very unfortunate. We can pause for a minute though.
1: Wanna pause? Okay, cool. (laughs) Two dungeons, Steven. We have to play
0: Yes, we are recording again.
1: We must away (laughs) a break of day (laughs) To find alone
0: In gold. nice compared to those men we have woman voices <laughs> right <laughs> dwarves
1: I hope the dwarves yes <laughs> those are dwarves yeah
0: all right, forty more minutes, I, I think. We was on a
1: drift, and then Melian came home, and we decided to pause it, and um, we were left at the morphic resonance. And I was about to say that I don't know much about what Rupert Sheldrake wrote in depth about it, but that uh, Terence McKenna was pretty much on board with it, I believe.
0: So you know what it is, or should I explain? Because I've kind of yeah. Tell me what it is. Yeah, show. Off okay, the- so the uh... game. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> no, so. It, it kind of also touches on the um, Jung's idea of having a collective unconscious, right?
1: Yeah, that's as far as I understand it. That it's a field that we're connected to, that connects everything that we're always part of.
0: Yeah, so um, uh, so he did some tests. Rupert Schellick did a test uh, because he stated a theory that, um, for example, if you look at uh, IQ tests... Um, over the course of a few years, they get easier. just And people's IQ tends to get higher. But that's because the the species, uh, we as a human species, have right. um, collectively more experience with those tests. And then in some sort of unconscious way, it just gets easier because the species yeah. has already experienced that.
1: Right. This reminds me of the 100 monkey effect. There's the 100 monkey effect. Yeah, so there's a... So, You're referring to that in the unconscious of humanity, the collective unconscious, we basically reach a critical threshold where at a certain point a specific percentage of people have a skill or know something. And it was uh, found, if you Google it, you'll see that the 100 monkey effect was that in a particular area there were some types of foods and I think these were nuts and in one area a brilliant monkey then found out that he could crack it in a certain way. Let's take it as a as an allegory. I'm not sure if it was actually I think it was it was definitely monkey but I'm not sure if it was a nut. Mm-hmm. Anyway, then the other monkeys picked that up, but on the other islands they were still doing the same thing. But gradually it spread and then the knowledge of how to crack that particular food was learned. And then at a certain point and that's the symbolic 100 monkeys, suddenly it spread and sprang into, se- seemingly sprang into the awareness of a lot of other monkeys that weren't actually in connection to them directly. So it seems like as the level, the percentage of monkeys that was actually aware of how to crack the nut, if that was reached, then it would spread in an unseen way, which could verify the theory of Rupert Sheldrake of the morphic Resonance.
0: Yeah, I feel like at at this point the amount of proof there is for this, I don't even feel like it's a theory anymore.
1: I, I for me, it's basically always been an intuitive truth that I can't deny and that I'm always relying on. That I just feel uh, in trust about and that I feel connected to. And I don't actually need any th- scientific evidence for it. Even though it's kind of, I think it's kind of cute and brave that Robert Chadwick attempted that. Well, yeah, he got
0: totally be... fucking cancelled for it. They thought he was <laughs> right? ridiculous. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I, yeah that's what, what I know as well. That it was actually not well received and he was always remaining a fringe. Well, even calling him a scientist was kind of slandering the scientific world.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of problems with science in general. Just the, the fact that they kind of limit their research to only a certain extent.
1: Well, if you read Ken Wilber, he's like, well, there's nothing wrong with science. It's just the very factual, observable uh, world of molecules and atoms and cells, uh, which is the perfect area for neurology and for biology and for f- you know the physiological body. But it doesn't discuss the subjective inner states, which is, according to Wilber, what the ancient traditions and the mystical traditions were all about it's all about knowing god through your own experience and ken Wilber is most famous for his integral theory where he said well you have that factual scientific approach and the subjective inner state approach or perspective but also the how do we relate to each other in groups and in families and uh, culturally and then he also talked about his system and i think that. Science just looks at the, well, the corner of science without including as much as it could the subjective uh, state experiences of, for example, meditation, psychedelic uh,
0: journeys. Yeah, because that's that's sort of where we come to the difference uh, that Terence McKenna described of uh, the differences between Western and Eastern science, right? Because Eastern mysticism is also a science.
1: Well it would be wrong to to define eastern mysticism as a science because it per per in in, in its essence eastern myst- well mysticism in general tends to look at the subjective and science cannot work with the subjective but you could say that the ancient mystical traditions and and, 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 and ancient eastern uh, mysticism that it was a way of looking at the world which was as legitimate as science
0: right now is in the West. You could say that. Okay, but, but Terence McKenna said that um, the, the difference between Western and Eastern philosophy is that the, the entire Western society has focused their science solely on deconstructing energy and understanding energy and yeah, the observable world and, and, the atoms, and that, Yes, that ended uh, to the point where we mastered um, the energy of the Sun and could fucking kill ourselves with the bombs
1: basically yeah
0: well, and yes. uh, so he said that Eastern mysticism is not really mysticism but it's just a different science and they use different tools because what they are focused on is deconstructing time and understanding the universe and they do yes. that by looking inside of their body yes. and meditating exactly and that's based on consciousness
1: their subjective state-based experiences which is where western science cannot go because it's not measurable quantifiable as much that's why psychedelics are pretty tricky and you can basically just look at behavior and effects on creativity and results but you cannot really measure the kind of um, how it is to be in a mystical state of union you can just measure the beneficial effects that that experience has on people and how long that well-being lasts and what kind of life changes and how many people how much how what percentage has life-changing experiences that's the the area of of Western science,
0: so so would you say that um, the Eastern science is also more ex- experiential based? Yes, yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah, Exactly. Instead of measuring things.
1: Yeah, well, you're measuring your consciousness and the levels of of, of uh, awareness and perception. So I'm I'm opposed to calling Western mysticism uh, science just because I I I associate data based. Factual observable reality, as Wilbur states it, with science and Eastern mysticism with state based experiences. And you could say that that is a science in and of itself, but it has nothing to do with our current what we now understand as science. But I believe that, for example, with Tibetan Buddhism that there you know, you also read the uh, Tibetan book of the living and dying, for example, and Mm -hmm. and the way they mapped out the Bardos and and so that's it's very methodological method methodological
0: (laughs) Something like that. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there there's a whole frame for how to understand consciousness. And and it is, and, and it is
0: there. Yeah because the the yeah. bardo's are basically the the stages between life and and rebirth. It's death and rebirth. Ken Wilber
1: defines it as the what happens when you're dropping out of the unity consciousness and then the layers that you go through those are all let's say bardo's. Is that a a let's say a threshold that you cross or is a bardo the
0: level that you're in?
1: Is it the threshold like you cross the bardo or do you are you in a it's more like 11.
0: a sort of a path with different stations, right?
1: I'm not sure. Well, I I guess I had these experiences on salvia where I actually, you know, was withdrawn from this dimension and okay, then a
0: little a little uh, context. So salvia is a psychedelic substance, right?
1: Yeah, salvia divinorum is one of the most okay. intense psychedelic substances that is right now in the netherlands weirdly enough legally available mm-hmm. and then also understandably Indigo-trio. yeah it's pretty weird well the smart shop and mm-hmm. it it's my breakthrough experience not everyone has that breakthrough experience so you could say oh yeah i did salvia and it was basically visual distortions and that sort of thing but i'm talking about breakthrough experiences uh, which is very much like the dmt breakthrough it actually the the psychedelic active compound is DMT. Uh, as far it's as I, psilocybia, yeah, 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 I think so. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's also an ayahuasca, I believe. So I mean, it's very. It's DMT is kind of the 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 chemo- the um psychedelic compound, but five uh, meo DMT is very comparable to a psilocybia um, breakthrough experience because you can just. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As far as I understand, based on Michael Pollan's. Uh,
0: but it's chapter, way yeah. different than DMT, though.
1: Yeah, well,
0: it's basically the sort
1: of breakthrough experience. Like DMT can be dosed in various measures, and then 5-MeO M- DMT, as far as I understand it, gives the breakthrough kind of experience that you can get on Salvia and on DMT. So with that as a background, I took Salvia, and then I basically, because I, well, my friend asked me for... For what I didn't a lighter or a bong and I don't know I, I was nineteen and kind of foolish and went into a kind of experimental uh, episodes and the and this Salvio was part of it and and he asked me for something and I jumped up, but I collapsed and and with that sort of shock I was propelled out of my body and and I was pulled out of this dimension really and um, witnessed how our everything we know the whole universe and and the whole this whole dimension as we know it like all the all the let's say the levels of existence that we can measure and and see and know in this universe it's just part of imagine it like a slice in an orange Everything we know, all the dimensions, all the levels, it's all part of of this slice. And and as I was withdrawn further and further, I noticed that actually there was a slice of existence next to me, parallel to me, which it felt like it was it was pushing me out of my current this slice. And, okay, so and this turned uh, orange eventually, yeah. and I saw that that it was actually composed of infinite parallel dimensions, and. Um, after that i i I entered into what could be described as a sort of uh interdimensional railway station where i was on a in a mining cart being carried backwards so i looked i looked and i just saw myself infinitely and i knew that behind me was myself looking infinitely at myself
0: and is that a sort of iconic experience of what people experience on here? I'm
1: not entirely sure, but what I did see was that at this sort of railway station, uh, there were actually light beings guiding us in kind of these docking uh, stations, like like archive boxes, where you have all these um, different um, sections with names and letters, and you can arrange everything. So we were arranged to our Um, well whatever you you would call it and that felt like a very logistical practical process which was guided by beings light beings and you had these smaller workers and these larger badasses i can imagine
0: how how creepy it sounds for people uh, listening if they don't know anything about these substances
1: it's very very profound because i was personally in a state of a complete bafflement and wonder and i felt like a newborn baby which is very interesting because i entered this dimension feeling helpless and having all these guides and and and, you know beings guiding me into that in, in in our current earthly world but i felt like that again when i entered or returned to the interdimensional railway station and i couldn't i couldn't move i couldn't talk i could just gaze <laughs> about me and uh bye million see you <laughs> soon yeah and gaze about me and 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 that's how i was handled just carried along and then they basically decided i wasn't ready and so i was about to be sent back and i i was taken by a being that only had uh, grabbing possibilities and consciousness it's very strange to envision so you had a very deep and profound experience yeah it felt like I was dying basically I, I died and it was the most uh, scary intense thing I've i have ever
0: experienced okay and but
1: nothing comes close nothing comes close to how scary that was Well, I can imagine yeah
0: <laughs> definitely
1: yeah and It's like everything I knew up to that point that I experienced, that I heard about, that I abstractly heard mentioning, like black holes and stars and and galaxies and, and whole human history from ancient, from primordial times to animals, mammals, and actually mankind. And then all our science that we have, everything that was actually not there anymore, like nothing was there everything we know, well, I left that, this place. So it was a complete unknown of different laws. Let's say we have gravity here, and there are just different laws. And you, the space worked differently there. And it was completely unknown. And that in itself it was
0: pretty scary. All <laughs> right, yeah, well, damn, It's it sounds very scary too, yeah. Well, you know,
1: there's this saying that I, I keep remembering in regards to Salvia. It's, so, allegedly, even the most experienced psychonauts, which is, a psychonaut is a person who likes to travel inside of his own psyche using psychedelics. Um, so, Terence McKenna was a very famous psychonaut. Actually, the most experienced psychonauts actually pee their pants a little whenever they can even consider taking salvia again. If you had a breakthrough process, breakthrough experience like that, yeah. So I didn't do that really afterwards, or at least I didn't have a breakthrough experience. But it uh, it it basically changed me forever. And right now, ten, I guess more than 10 years later I realize that the subjective experience of God or of unity that it seems like this is actually at the root of our religion and this is really well uh, written out initially by uh, in the book The uh, Road to Eleusis where uh, Karl Rock and Hoffman and um, some other guy i forgot uh, discussed the possibility that that elusis in ancient greece was actually a a an organized religion that surrounded itself around an epiphany of a mystic mystical sort which was induced by a psych- a psychedelic uh, agent uh, and uh, according to Hoffman an alkaloid uh, based on fungus like uh, lsd Uh, and i don't know if it was the alkaloid based on lsd like lsd but it seems like the what's the book called again Uh, brian murarescu with uh the
0: immortality key
1: yeah if you die before you die when you die you don't die and it seems like psychedelics are the agent of transmitting infinity and god and giving mankind meaning and connection to something greater than them and that's what salvia did for me and that mushroom was still do for me and i feel like that's at the root of our healing to forget that we are actually to for, to to leave behind the sense of isolation desperation fear looping thoughts anxiety and depression and to reconnect to that sort of source that you, i don't know what kind of experience you will have but it can feel like returning to a source that you've always been part of or that yeah, so it's
0: it's a, it's a very spiritual experience it's right a very
1: very spiritual experience and i would say it is actually the archetypal spiritual experience because it induces in large amounts uh, mushrooms do induce Mystical experiences and states of of unity consciousness.
0: Yeah, in a high dose, right? And um, we we know quite a bit about that, about uh, microdosing and things like that. Yeah, exactly. uh, I feel like um, the audience misses quite a bit of context about it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, to go back a little bit, so you used psilocybin when you was nineteen. You were you were very involved with. Uh, with certain kind of drugs and compounds, right, to yeah. to numb the pain and things like that. Well, to circle back to some of my story, and I think we we still
1: haven't really gotten to the core of why do I do what I do, and we haven't
0: even discussed what I do practically. But yeah, we kind of went all over the place, but that's fine. Yeah,
1: so basically my escapades with substances took on an experimental form, and I just well, you know, first it was gaming and then eventually weed and, and well, drinking first and eventually partying and women and, and I went into a whole party phase where it was a lot of MDMA and ecstasy and uh, that was very normal in those days for, for a lot of young people. You've been a DJ for quite a while, right? Well, well I mean, I I loved uh, playing music and I, I had a few, uh, I played a few gigs, yeah, but uh, <laughs> I, yeah, it was basically a, a hobby of mine, yeah. Yeah, but it it's kind of right at that time I was lost and directionlessness, uh, directionless, and um, since my father wasn't there, I didn't even know how to be a man and what that meant. And I was I was just familiar with with these addictive immediate pleasure. Uh, Well, yeah, instant gratification was part of that, but basically not dealing with life and not knowing how to deal with life. And that's how I actually, well, eventually I did find men who could guide me. And so I uh, joined the initiation at Reclaim Your Inner Throne, which I loved, which was an archetypal online men's initiation that uh, is really eclectic in its nature in terms of exercises like TRE, breath work. Uh, a lot of guided meditations, but is iconic in that it features archetypal images and, and a grand narrative, very
0: Tolkienian in nature. And that changed Okay. My life. Um, so archetypal images and Tolkienian, we need a bit of an explanation. Okay,
1: yeah. So in the collective unconscious, we have, there exist, let's say, imprints or energies that through our brain and through our connection to the collective unconscious are translated in our consciousness to specific images. So, for example, when we see a, a healthy role model, we can, because of how we interpret those images from the collective unconscious, we can project that image onto someone and we can say oh he has a he's very kingly he has this very royal generous steadfast protective energy right and and so i work a lot with these archetypes at reclaim where after i uh, was mentored there by ivan and uh, basically trained i i worked with these archetypes myself like the warrior the king warrior magician lover system is is very famous for that in men's work circles but the archetypes they are grand overarching images that convey a deeper symbolic meaning and i think it was jung who said that uh, symbolism is the bridge between uh, the external world and and maybe i'm butchering this but it really symbol is is the bridge between consciousness and and meaning, I would say. Maybe I'm just making this up for myself. But for example, you have the archetype of death, or of the underworld, or or
0: personalized, um, like the warrior. But but is the is the is an archetype comparable to a stereotype of something?
1: Well, you could project certain archetypal
0: images on stereotypes. And But what is the exact definition of an archetype then? Mm,
1: you could define arch- an archetype as being an overarching larger than life image that we can perceive in the world which is a fraction of infinity consciousness. So, for example, there are tons of archetypes, and they're all related, but it depends on how we look at things and how we interpret them. And um, they're basically psychological functions. And it seems like we inherited this from our ancient ancestors, and that the archetypal world is actually very uh, ancient, very archaic. And, and predates our rational mind so archetypes if you for example uh, love fairy tales or mythology archetypes are very prevalent in there and it seems like that's why we as children and even later as adults we really resonate with some stories because we can identify with certain characters and we recognize the archetypal images and patterns like death and rebirth is a very iconic uh, archetypal pattern, or um, we're still on, or uh, yeah, we back. <laughs> yeah. So for and for example, the transition from uh, childhood to adulthood to elder, dom, elderhood, elderhood. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm talking about uh, elder, the elder. I don't know. The old, the old, the old man, that. the old woman, elder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are iconic transitions. So let me hold this thing No, okay, I won't hold it. So Jung is said uh, is Jung said that the the archetypes are the. Oh, I guess that was recorded.
0: There was a little fart. Yeah. It's coming, guys. Oh, oh no! <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh. oh God, man!
0: Oh, no. oh, I'm not gonna cut this out. <laughs> I know. Oh, I'll say? keep my distance a little bit an archetypal fart
1: <laughs> well the joke the archetype the archetypal joke farting but that that the unconscious the the structure of the collective unconscious is built by archetypes archetypes are like the highways of the collective unconscious through which we make sense of
0: the larger unconscious world the, the, do we do we use these archetypes or are the archetypes more of a way of uh categorizing parts of our consciousness that that you can repeatedly see that are being expressed uh over and over in generations and generations so i mean that um there's a certain group of emotions and personality yeah. traits that fit into this archetype and people switch between those things as sort of a a stance that they are in and it's only when these are kind of balanced and aligned in a way that that we feel good or, or we are the way we are supposed to be well you're very close with all of this
1: but one one thing we need to keep in mind is that in in fact they're like this is maybe very paradoxical but In the larger world, there is no such thing as archetype. Like, actually, it's something we conceive of inside of our own consciousness. It's just because we believe, because we see them, because we project our unconscious material on things that we perceive these archetypes, which says something about the way our consciousness is structured, the way the collective unconscious is structured, and the way we project and perceive the world. But that doesn't make for example, the king archetype, uh, an, an, like an actual thing in, in and of itself. It is nothing, but it is a psychological reality because we perceive it this way. But so that's very important distinction. And when people... So the king, warrior, magician, lover system is... It's a quadrant where you have the different aspects of masculine psychology that can either... Act in their uh, shadow behavior, and that's either exploding or collapsing into depression and powerlessness, exploding into anger or or reactivity and or collapsing, plus and minus inflation deflation, and the archetypes become uh, powers that run through us, which we can can tap into to allow us to navigate life in an appropriate way, and that's true, and and. If, if you would mature these king warrior magician lover, basically you reach the, the pinnacle of potential, the masculine potential, which is pr- practically impossible to achieve, but it's a great aspiration. And that's why I love the image of Aragorn uh, portrayed by Viggo Mortensen and Peter Jackson's uh, Lord of the Rings rendition. Because Viggo Mortensen represents the ultimate masculine potential. He's wholehearted. He protects. He can fight. But he's loving. He's forgiving. And even though he goes on a journey towards maturation, so to say. That's why I also love him. He, In his kinghood, he embodies that archetype perfectly. And you could say that there are traits that are inspiring and, and wholesome that you may want to uh, exhibit and and act upon and then the the art is to tap into the energy of that archetype and then feel that energy inside of you and and so sorry and notice how you want to bring that energy yourself into this world so if I want to have a great workout i pump myself up with warrior
0: energy where it's like
1: ruthless and empowered and embodied and it's like i need to go right and it's kind of
0: beastly as well uh, in, in a because way. the um we can I, w- I would like to like roughly go over all the four archetypes in just okay. a split second game, right I mean, so yeah, yeah so you, you talked about you pumping yourself up for the workout so the yeah. the the warrior can you- yeah so the warrior archetype
1: is really embodied well in the last samurai uh, movie with Tom Cruise where you have the samurai Katsumoto and he is oh, he's actually he's really kingly as well but he's the what it makes him such a beautiful warrior here there there's already the element of the lover in there the aesthetics and beauty and pleasure a beautiful warrior what makes him so beautiful is that he is in service Yeah, it's getting late Mm -hmm, Yeah. yeah the warrior is in service to the king the warrior basically protects and is firm on his boundaries the warrior has this energy of individuality he is structured he's disciplined he knows what he wants and how to get it done and this is where many men who I work with as as being more spiritually inclined and typically nice guys and, and pleasers like I was, and sometimes still am, you know, under the circumstances, that they lack that sort of assertive, you, I refrain from calling it dominant, but embodied, empowered energy. and And the warrior can become really destructive like that's part of the warrior shadow he can actually that's where i think that's where toxic masculinity really all the shadows of the archetypes really are embodied in a tos- toxic what people now call
0: toxic masculinity Yeah, the, the, the warrior is the like the purest form of uh masculine energy right uh, aggression and it's
1: the most typical like what people associate most often and most clearly with very powerful masculinity but there we have the other archetypes and i feel like they're all part of it the king is also very recognizable and and the king is actually the, the the crown of all of them where he is like the pinnacle when you have the warrior empowered and 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 the others integrated i'll go over them it's a bit clunky now to start with the king but the mm-hmm. king has this sort of i hold the space and i protect the kingdom and i provide and i am the vessel for the divine and and i allow my my people to prosper that's a very kingly quality which is very masculine honestly as well
0: so it has to do with with leadership and values yes oh yeah exactly and vision and
1: and fighting for something greater and and that vision that the king creates the warrior pursues it so the different the warrior energy fights for the vision that is more of a kingly energy. So there's an, an interconnection with
0: them. So the the archetypes metaphorically interact with one another.
1: Yeah, well, not even metaphorically, but psychologically. On a on a psychological level, you tap into the kingly uh, in in the king archetype, so you feel a kingly energy. You create a vision for the future and then you switch gears, tap into the warrior energy.
0: Wait, but so they are different energies that you use. So it's not that you metaphorically kind of use the warrior, but you are kind of actually doing it because they are sort of energy channels that you tap into. Yes, exactly. They are structures of consciousness
1: and you could say energy that exists in all of us and that we're all hardwired into, which connects us to the collective unconscious.
0: Okay, but this we are talking about masculine archetypes now because it's it's different for women in a sense, right?
1: Well uh it's a challenging topic because I'm not a woman and uh mm-hmm. and but all I know is that the life's journey for men is different than from women. And so as a result the core characteristics on an archetypal level also include different qualities and one of the most recognizable is of course motherhood like the archetype of mother it's i mean we can debate about gender and um <laughs> and sex all day but i actually honestly feel that the mother archetype it's this is a very treacherous slope honestly to get on but there can be female warriors that you know you can have the queen and you can have a lover obviously um but the nuance in energy is different and and
0: because it's it's definitely already expressed um to a different um how you say that when you plug in a different wire you use a yes. different thing to kind of play the the game right so it's it's already manifested through a different uh Thing with a different energy that affects the archetypes, then
1: well you're you're on a very it seems like the direction you had into is very firm, but I would also add that the biology of women versus men is just way different. and I would dare argue that the structure that that women have psychologically inside of them is also different, which means that the way the collective unconscious streams through them and the way they interact with with their consciousness is different because we are ruled by different archetypal patterns and a more in in nuance a, a difference in how we interact and perceive
0: reality yes so a woman can never teach a man how to be a man well that's
1: another topic that's very interesting i that is actually one of the core truths uh which uh when people try to debate that or when i see women leading men's initiations i can just only shake my head and and wonder what i'm i'm basically just stunned and have lack for words because it's and and this is being acknowledged more and more, but women
0: cannot role model healthy masculine traits. I but think it's I think you should never go to a female psychologist as a man. As well. I
1: would refrain from it as well, but I, I, <laughs> it's interesting because you need to keep in mind that there can be heavy transference going, and transference is when you project personal... Uh, experiences or images or associations that you have from your personal life for your like your mother for example that you project them onto the therapist and that's that's called transference
0: wait so do do you mean that by what I just said I do that or
1: well it you you if you go as a as a guy go to a female therapist there are a lot of complications that can arise and one of them is very strong transference of a mother dynamic and the danger is that the therapist doesn't see that and then actually goes into counter-transference and treats you like a child. That's very dangerous. But the other is of course, uh, sexuality, sexual um, polarity, which can, well, <laughs> it can mess with a lot of things. Um, it will start with idealization from the client and, and have this in love uh, experience. And it, you know, if the therapist isn't so skilled it can actually either escalate or um, disturb the healthy therapeutic uh, relationship, which is necessary for, for trauma to
0: heal and for processes to unfold. So does, does the kind of the natural sexual attraction between different genders then already interfere with the therapeutic process?
1: On the one hand, you may, because of the attraction, you may be more open, or you may be more um, excited to go to her as a guy because there is that dynamic going on. But the, the danger is that you get into these these patterns with her, which are unhealthy and um, where you will repeat, for example, childhood dynamics. So if you're attracted and you like going to your therapist, that's really the least of your problems. But it can escalate, because if you're in that space of transference and of interacting, um, to going down that path may actually challenge you more than if you would just be with a man. And I guess as a guy, many guys that I speak to, they just want healthy masculine role models. And that's the thing I looked for all my life. Without knowing it, honestly.
0: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, with all the respect to these female therapists, I I definitely think they can help you, of course. Yeah, um, I, I my my therapist is a is a
1: woman at this point from my studies, the Jungian, Jungian analytical therapist. hmm And um, she's pretty good, but and we're both aware of transference and 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 kind of being careful with it, mm-hmm. but. Honestly, I preferred one of the the male therapists wh- who was uh, unfortunately unavailable. Uh, kind of ironic. My father was unavailable, it's kind of like, ah, the pain all over again.
0: Yeah. 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 So so you feel that really? Did I felt that, yeah. Yeah. Okay, but um so to kind of come to an end because we are reaching the kind of the time limit here. Mm-hmm. Um so I mean, you could go with a woman, but then you are kind of at risk of things and you miss a lot of uh, masculine development because they can't really assist you in that on a deeper level because they aren't a man themselves. But but we can... Yes. Uh, like the masculinity is, of course, also part of the female, just like femininity is part of the male. Exactly. But then we go into the animus and anima, uh, stuff yeah, yeah. Uh, we we can roughly go over that before we close off uh, because yeah. that came came up in my mind. I I realize
1: now that we actually didn't mention that I was trained uh, in Jungian psychology and that I'm actually studying Jungian analytical therapy right now. So I kind of probably. It, kind of
0: dawned on you as you heard this was like
1: he's talking a lot about Jung I don't know what's that all about
0: yeah we need we need uh, another episode for the bigger context because we haven't really gotten into you yet <laughs> right yes, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah but uh, uh a friend of mine actually let's just cover that first said uh, you know there's uh, gender and sex and and then there is uh, masculine feminine energy and I believe the masculine feminine energy is a is a polar is a is a sliding scale right we have feminine guys i work with a lot of feminine guys and i help them become more masculine and the world right now with extreme let's say feminists they are more actually more masculine it's kind of like uh you're kind of missing the point here um this energy is actually more masculine than feminine so are you betraying yourself it's kind of shifting now right yes there's this polarity shift where the men kind of from the from the sixties and seventies from first uh, flower power and then feminism went into sensitivity and the women were like, I want e- equality and, and work and then be liberated. And, and that kind of, even though that, that sentiment is, is absolutely necessary and fantastic. It drifted off into, I need to then if I want to make it in this world, in this patriarchal world i need to unfortunately do things like men do which makes them masculine so i hope to really by empowering men to be more masculine if they want that and that's the thing people they these guys they suffer because they actually feel so sensitive inability to set boundaries not being able to get angry if you're suffering from that i want to help you get more in touch with your masculine energy and and and, and then, of course there's gender and and how do you identify and that but i don't want to go into that it's basically the animus anima is the psychological equivalent of the masculine and feminine energy, and the masculine side is called the animus uh, in women you have the animus, which is actually um, if it's not integrated and accepted it it she will become bickering and resentful and resistant and she won't be able to relax and surrender into her so the
0: the masculinity and the femininity uh should be balanced in a sense within a person
1: yeah and i first want to finish the anima so if you're a guy and you're listening to this uh, your anima is basically your gateway to intuition to your sensitivity and to to your surrendered state And if you haven't integrated your anima well, uh, you'll become moody and kind of uh, grouchy and you can kind of get depressed and have these mood swings and uh, feel kind of directionless. And if you integrate it, she'll be your guide. She'll be your, um, your beacon of light and intuition that you can trust and you can surrender. And the anima is very related to the lover archetype, which we didn't cover. The lover is all about flow, appreciation of art, music, food, uh, resting state, like parasympathetic nervous system. Mm
0: -hmm. And the magician, uh, we didn't say too. Yes, yes.
1: The magician is more related to sense making. Can you see the connections between everything that happens in this world? Can you you make a map of reality that works for you? So, for example, Ken Wilber with his Integral Theory is a great map maker he sees connections and and the whole overview of, of human evolution and that he's a great magician in that side and i wanted to say how for example i, I didn't finish this thought earlier where you have the uh, you are born with a psychotic psychological structure because there's no you cannot set boundaries and everything and as you grow up you become more neurotic you can be more in control you can be more uh, defensive and rationalize and the same happens in our society this was an important Thought that i wanted to finish so if you look at tribal cultures or ancient past we lived in a more psychotic state where it was more connected to the divine we saw gods you know animism you see spirits in the forest in the waters and basically things flow in a more organic way and then as just as with people as we are born in a psychotic state and we grow if everything goes all right grow on to be more responsible controlled neurotic just like that, cultures also develop like that when we start out animalistically, literally, and then go through the developmental stages of consciousness, and culture eventually arises. And then we get the Netherlands as a pinnacle of neuroticism with traffic lights and traffic signs everywhere and everything being organized to a T, so to say. And. Basically, and this is where I want to tie it all together, it calls for the balancing of these energies. So if you're too rigid, you're probably more neurotic than psychotic, in uh, psychologically speaking, not, not diagnostically speaking. Um, like you wouldn't get diagnosed if you uh, are a bit controlling or structured with uh, OCD necessarily, for example, like overly compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. But just like you need to balance the archetypes, king, warrior, magician, lover, the protector, the, the caretaker, the, the, the intimate lover who, who can surrender and appreciate, and the map maker, just like you need to integrate those, you need to balance your, if you're a man, your, your anima, if you're a woman, your animus. And so the archetypes need to be balanced, the anima, animus needs to be integrated masculine feminine energy seems like like this is the time for people to find more alignment inside of themselves to to and that means taking both and 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 integrating both in their own consciousness so we are connected to both and we can use both and just like that in our society i think the netherlands bounces too far to the neurotic side of control and structure And we need and this is where I think Terence McKenna was brilliantly ahead of his time or exactly on time with the archaic revival of having the highly developed culture, neurotic culture, everything is organized and reintroduce that ancient, more primordial, more psychotically structured consciousness that allows for the sacred, that allows for the feminine principle to crack through and balance the patriarchy. ...with a more loving, wholesome, nourishing, feminine connection to the divine. So we as people in this cosmos, on this earth, inside ourselves and externally in our culture... ...can live in more balance with ourselves. So we can live happily and fulfilled, safely and thriving... ...on a planet that doesn't deconstru- self-destruct. And that's what I want to do with my guys. And that's what I wish for for every one of you... ...and for uh, all the countries and for the world, basically.
0: Okay, that was it.
1: Yeah, I feel
0: complete with that for now. Yeah. We will definitely do uh, another episode. Yeah, it would be fun maybe on your
1: channel yeah let's see we can stream it on my youtube
0: all right yeah. we, we need a little guitar song to close it off <laughs> <laughs> okay i'll play a goodbye song i'll
1: play <clears throat> bob marley's redemption song oh you played it or something like this you can sing along as you listen
0: Bob Molly posted there, no? Oh, yeah, well, hold on.
1: <laughs> Old pirates, yes, they robbed by. Sold I to the merchant ships. <laughs> Minutes after they. Oh, hold on, I was distracted by the mic. <laughs> Minutes after they took high. triumphantly yeah that's right won't you help to sing these songs of freedom are all I ever had pitch yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds Ooh, Have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them are gonna stop at of time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look? Some say it's just a part of it. We've got to fulfill the book. That's right. Won't you help to sing? These songs of freedom are all I ever had. Gotta fulfill the book Last one Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Are all I ever had ah, That's it Redemption song Redemption song
0: Yes! There we go. There we go. Okay. That was it.
1: Thank you. I feel touched and satisfied and nourished and grateful.
0: That's uh, our little check in. Ruben always does that when he works with groups. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Everybody got to say how they feel. Check
1: in in the comments below. And
0: And I feel uh, tired and happy. Yes. Oh, that's my toe. (laughs) Slow it down. (laughs) All right. We are going to close off, guys. Thanks for listening. Kisses. Good night. Kisses. (laughs)